As our scripture reading was read for us earlier by the Rogers family, let me simply begin with a story that you may have heard about an old Midwestern farmer who didn't believe in God and had no interest in religious celebrations at all. And so when Christmas came, though his wife believed in the Lord and taught their children to trust in the Lord, and Christmas came, she invited him to go to the Christmas celebration, and he would have none of it. That's ridiculous, he said. Why would God want to become one of us? And so, mom took the kids off to the service. In the midst of the Midwestern snowstorm, she went faithfully to the service, and he stayed at home. As the snow was coming down and he settled in front of the fireplace, he hears a thump against the window, and then another thump against the window. He looks outside, and there are a flock of geese. And one of them, two of them, had flown smack into the window, blinded by the snowstorm. And he sees them out there, fluttering and confused. And, and as a farmer has a heart for animals, he feels some compassion for them. And he thinks, what can possibly help these birds? And so he says, my barn is warm and safe, and he goes out in the middle of the storm, and he pulls the doors wide open, and there the birds are going to see the opening so that they can go into safety and to find refuge. The birds paid no attention to him. They're just fluttering around aimlessly, helplessly. So he shouts at them, go to the barn, go to the barn. That only scatters them a little bit more. He tries to herd them in. That only frightens them a little bit more. He puts down some breadcrumbs, and they pay no attention. Suddenly he says to himself, they'll not listen to a human. If I was a goose... Then I could save them. And he gets an idea. And he goes into the barn and he gathers up one of his own geese. And he circles around behind this flock of uh, aimless geese. And he holds his goose and then throws it toward the middle. And the goose flutters its wings and flies straight into the barn. One after another, all the other geese follow in line to safety inside the barn. And the man remembers his words. If I were a goose, then they could hear me, they could follow me. And he remembers his earlier words. Why would the Almighty become a man? And our scripture text for today is this. You heard it before, but hear it again. The Word became flesh and made His dwelling among us. We have seen His glory, the glory of the one and only who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. And you see, suddenly for that farmer, it all made sense, didn't it? That's why God had to become a man. God had to save us only in that way. We who were confused and who were lost and aimless, we needed Him to come. And that farmer fell to his knees in the snow and prayed his first prayer. Thank you, Lord, for becoming a man 
to get me out of the storm. Now, people don't believe in God for all kinds of reasons, like that farmer. For many people, the objection is this, God is invisible. But you know, our very text, the first chapter of John says, it says, for no man has seen God. It is true. But for us, on this side of the fall and Adam and Eve, that is a good thing, not a bad thing. In fact, what John said needs some qualification. It is not true that no man or woman has ever seen God because Adam and Eve did. Adam and Eve, in their pure state, before they sinned, they walked with God. They talked with God there in the Garden of Eden. There was no barrier between them. But we know that once sin came into the world and man's soul, women's souls were tarnished, then they were cut off. Isaiah says, God tells us, your sins have separated you from me. But that is because if we were to behold God Almighty in His unveiled holiness, glory, and power, we would melt. It would be like an incinerator. It would, we would just be vaporized. The face of Jesus Christ, we are told, in His unveiled glory is like the sun shining in us all its brilliance. What is the sun? The sun is a star of 10,000 hydrogen bombs exploding every moment. And so God has veiled Himself to preserve us. But that's not the end of the story. Because, you see, then the rest of the Bible, speaking through the history of redemption, beginning with His work with Israel, tells us that God comes close. And as Michael showed us with that tent that He just popped up right in front of us, in the tabernacle, God came close and made Israel a privileged nation, for He dwelt in the, in the middle of them, in that tabernacle that was carried along, and then in His temple, established there in Jerusalem, God came close. Now in the incarnation of Jesus Christ in the Gospel of John, we are told God came closer still in human flesh. And then in Pentecost, 50 days after the resurrection of Jesus, the Holy Spirit fell upon the church in a new and wonderful way and indwells every believer. And you are the temple of God. You, Christian, have the Spirit of Christ dwelling within you. He comes even closer and closest. When Jesus Christ comes again, John says, we will be changed and we will be made like Him because we will see Him, what? Face to face. And that is what is called glorification. We, we will experience a change because we see Him face to face. We, it says we will be glorified. And all that sin that plagues you, all that sorrow, every regret. Do you have any regrets in life? I've got lots of regrets. All those regrets will evaporate. You will be made new and you will be glorified. Or as Paul simply says, you will be changed in an instant. In the twinkling of an eye, at the sound of a trumpet, you will be made new. This is amazing. Some of us forget just how amazing it is because maybe Christmas is so familiar. 
We need amazing put back into grace, don't we? John says, we have seen His glory. And verse 18 later on says, the Father has made Himself known through Jesus Christ. Let's be very clear. No matter what the Jehovah's Witnesses say, no matter what the Unitarians say in their denial of the deity of Christ, it is very clear in the Gospel of John, Jesus was God and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. The deity of Jesus Christ is something we do not just casually give up. Oh no, God among us. The reason that I stress this so much, and maybe in conversations you might have with other people, is this. Men don't mind sometimes believing that there is a God. It's just that they prefer Him to be at a distance. I had a friend back in Philadelphia who was a missionary in Africa, George Renner. And George used to encounter uh, these tribes that had different deities. They had the water god with a little g and the mountain god. And the mountain god was the big god, and he was the powerful god. And, and the people, he said, they were very glad that the mountain god lived up on the mountain, far away. Why? Because he's up there, and he doesn't have a whole lot to do with us down here. Thank you very much. Well, you know, that's not just primitive religion. That's your neighbor. That's your colleague at work. That's the kid at the desk next to you at school who would say, well, yeah, yeah, I believe in God. It's just that he doesn't intersect my life very much. You know people like that? But you see, God comes close. Our Lord is not a mountain God who is far away. He pursues. He comes close. He gets closer. He gets closer still. And yeah, He's intrusive. And yes, He disturbs us, but that's what happens. The Word becomes flesh, dwells among us, then He sends His Spirit, and it lives inside. He lives inside us. <laughs> and then we are convicted of our sin, and we are made new, and He changes us. How does He do it? with grace and truth. And I love this phrase, this simple phrase that says, He dwelt among us full of grace and truth because Jesus Christ came to solve the problems of what? Sin and ignorance. You see, the human condition now is one of sin and ignorance. Think about those two words. They really do characterize what's wrong with humanity. Sin. The Bible defines sin as the transgression of the law of God. Any time you violate the holy character of God, that is a sin. Or other times in the Bible it's defined as a failure to conform to or to live up to the law of God, the standard of God. And so if you fail to live up to it or you transgress it, transgress it expressly, that's a sin. And we do it in our thoughts, we do it with our words, we do it in our actions. Listen, our biggest problem is not the $15 trillion national debt. Mankind's biggest problem is not that there are nuclear warheads in Russia or 
North Korea or India. Mankind's biggest problem is sin. Rebellion against a holy God. And the other problem is ignorance. Ignorance. We just don't know. It tells us in the Bible people suppress the truth in unrighteousness. That's Romans 1, 18 through 21. It's like a be- you have a beach ball in the water, and what do we do? We try and sit on that beach ball and press it down in under the water so that we don't have to deal with the truth about God and the claims that He has over our lives, you see. And so we become ignorant. What does Jesus Christ do? That first Christmas, He came full of grace to deal with sin and truth to deal with ignorance. Now, you college students here, again, we are so glad you're home from college and that you're with us. We want to remind you that Paul says, as Christians, we need to learn to take every thought captive to Christ. That is to say, everybody has a a way of making sense out of the world, don't they? Everybody. I don't care who you are, whether you're a... a, a, person with less education or a person with a Ph.D. in astrophysics, everybody has a way they make sense out of life. We want to do it according to the Scriptures, according to the truth of Christ. So here you have a Christian and here you have an atheist. And the atheist says, there is no God. And the Christian says, oh, there, there is a God. And the atheist says, if there is a God, he would be unknowable. And the Christian says, oh no, he does make himself known. He's made himself known through revelation. And the atheist says, there is no way to tell right from wrong. Right and wrong is simply a societal construct and um, morality is relative. And the Christian says, oh, no, 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 God is holy and his ways are right and true. And there are such things as moral absolutes. And, and the atheist says, man is just a bunch of chem- bag of chemicals. It's just a bag of chemicals. We're trying to hold it together until those chem- that bag of chemicals sort of wears out and turns to dust. And when you're dead, you're dead. That's all there is. And the Christian says, to the contrary, man is not just the highest form of animal. Man is uniquely made in the image of God with dignity. And he has not only a body, but he also has a soul. And that soul will live forever. And though the body decays, it will be raised from the dead. The the righteous to heaven and the unjust will be sent away to hell. And so there is a a destiny for every human. You see, there's a worldview. And they clash. Jesus Christ came not only full of grace, but He came full of truth. He pours out His love on His creatures. Now, I want to ask this question as we finish up soon. It's this. What characterizes your life? What words would people use to describe you? And what characterizes our life as a church family? Wouldn't it be great, wouldn't it be great if people talked about you when they gossiped about you and they would say, he is a man of grace and truth. 
That church over there on the north shore of Long Island, those people, those people are people of grace and truth. And we would know the reason they say that is because Jesus Christ was living inside us, you see. Wouldn't that be wonderful? That's what I want for us as a church family. People who speak the truth in love. People so full of grace. We know how to to bless and encourage. We call sin, sin. We don't, you know, being a gracious person doesn't mean you ignore sin and evil in the world. In fact, sin grieves us. Sin hurts us. We are sad when we see the problems and the pain of this world that are brought about by the stupidity and the sinfulness of people. But then the grace of Christ that has forgiven us works in us so that we can bless and forgive and instruct others in the way of the Lord. What's the connection with all of this revelation of grace and truth for you on this Christmas day? It's this. It says in verse 16, From the fullness of His grace we have all received one blessing after another. Literally, it says, we have all received grace upon grace. And the word I want you to just camp out with me for just a moment on is the word received. Have you received grace upon grace? I'd like you to think about that just for a moment. Have you received it? God doesn't just want you to have a head full of knowledge. It's personal with God. He comes close, closer still. He invades you. Do you put up a shield to God? Do you have excuses? You just don't want him, you, you'll, you want Him to be like the mountain God up there? No, not today. He won't let you get away with that. I don't want to let you get away with that. If you're a part of this church family, the elders, your small group leader, your Bible study leader, they won't let you get away with this. We want you to receive that grace and truth. And that, that, is, that requires on your part an openness. I don't know what you do in your own life to make God a mountain God far away. Some of you are so busy... You are so busy that every time God rings that doorbell, every time God knocks, every time God brings conviction to your life, you are running like the jackrabbit. And today is the day to stop it and to receive grace upon grace. Do you know what I mean? It says in Hebrews 4.16, Let us then approach the throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. Oh, friends, this is so wonderful. Jesus came to be close to you today. And I, I pray now that you will just soften your heart, open your heart to Him as we go to prayer and say, I want to receive your grace. Maybe there's sin in your life and you just say, I want to know God that I'm clean before you. He will do that. Maybe there's anxiety in your life. Lord, the bills have been piled up so high. Maybe you're 
you have gotten a bad report from the doctors. You say, I need grace to get through this. You today, I invite you to receive grace upon grace. Would you do that? Let's bow our heads. Let's come together in prayer and receive from the Lord the grace that He has for us. Lord, every one of us now is in the, in the quietness of our own hearts. We want to tell you where we need grace and where we need truth. So right now, just take a moment of silence and tell the Lord where you need grace and where you need understanding and, and truth and clarity in your life. Would you do that, please? Some of us need grace to be forgiven, Lord. Assure us that we are forgiven. Some of us need grace to extend forgiveness to others because hatred has become a bitterness inside our soul. Give us that grace. Some of us are so busy, overwhelmed with life and burdens of life, but we've been running on that rat race, that rat wheel, and we say today we stop. Reassert your rightful place, your rightful priority in our lives, dear Lord. Some of us are ill and frail. We pray that you would give us grace and strength in this coming year that we may walk with our heads high even if our bodies are weak, because we are your children. And some of us, Lord, we need that, that truth to permeate our thoughts. We, we offer our minds to you that the seductions of, of secular philosophy, secular music, um, atheistic ways of thinking would be corrected in us. And I'm in the front of the line, Lord. I, I want every thought taken captive to You. Teach me Your ways, O Lord. Show me Your truth. We have received grace. Let earth receive her King. Help us to take this King into the world that the earth might know that every heart may make room for Him. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, joy to the world.